that if you want to be a kick-ass 90-year-old, you cannot settle for being an average 50-year-old. And so, you know, aiming for average when you're 50 or in midlife is not an appropriate strategy for being a healthy 85-year-old. I'm Dr. Mark Rowe, and welcome to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. As a family physician, my expertise is supporting people in the areas of positive health and lifestyle medicine. Join me in conversations that share life lessons, health habits, and leadership practices, focusing on positive psychology, lifestyle medicine, and ways that enable you to live with more vitality on purpose. Appreciating that when it comes to your vitality, that everything is so interconnected. Episodes will air weekly, and you can find me wherever you listen to your podcasts. And of course, on my website, drmarkrow.com. As a practicing family doctor with expertise in lifestyle as medicine, my purpose is to encourage and support you in terms of positive health, personal growth, and all things well-being. As I say, to never stop starting. Each month on a live webinar, I teach learning by doing and learning by being. The why and the how of health enhancing habits, giving you the science as well as support strategies to live with more vitality. I'd like to invite you to join my self-development club. To learn more and to sign up, visit drmarkrow.com. I'm delighted to be joined in the doctor's chair today by Dr. Patty Barrett, preventative cardiologist based in the Black Rock Clinic in Dublin. Originally from Galway, Ireland, Paddy completed his medical school training at University College Dublin. Having done further training at the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland, he then did extensive specialty cardiology training in world-class medical centres in both New York and California. Dr. Barrett spent four years at the Scripps Translational Science Institute in California, working alongside the world-renowned cardiologist, Dr. Eric Topol, on the fields of cardiovascular genomics and medical innovation. As part of his time there, he played a pivotal role in the development of several new technologies, large-scale clinical trials, and has published extensively in the field. He speaks regularly around the world on heart disease. Paddy also has a major interest in well-being. He founded and hosted an, an internationally acclaimed medical podcast known as The Doctor's Paradox. He's a sought-after speaker on the area of burnout around the world. He's also a faculty member of the medical education company, Practicing Excellence, which provides physician education to hospital systems across the United States. His work on physician performance has resulted in collaboration with a host of medical and scientific thought leaders. Dr. Barrett has also worked with NASA's Reduced Gravity Office in terms of developing products to allow future astronauts to be medically monitored in the space environment. Paddy, you're most welcome to the doctor's chair. Thanks so much. Good to be here. That's quite an introduction. And I suppose I just want to press the rewind button for a minute and just kind of go back to the start. You know, where did your passion for becoming a doctor for medicine and then I suppose preventative cardiology all come from? Uh, well, I started off thinking that I was going to be a barrister and I uh, had a dream one night that I followed a doctor on his ward rounds and I was asking him questions of what it was like. And then I woke up in the morning and said, yeah, I'll do that. There's no one in my family who's a doctor. It hadn't come into my head at all. And, uh, you know, maybe it was my subconscious speaking to me, but, uh, you know, ironically, it came to me in a dream. I think it's really interesting how you, you term yourself 
a preventative cardiologist because, you know, so much of modern medicine is about treating illness and, and disease, whereas, of course, you know, prevention is really where it's all at. And, and that seems to be your major focus. Yeah, I look at this purely on a, on a math and actuarial basis. Um, in the developed world, the most likely reason an adult will die is because of cardiovascular disease, cancer or dementia. There's primary leading factors for that. And focusing on those risk factors significantly reduces the likelihood of you developing those conditions early in life. If you look at the healthy centenarian population, so those individuals living to, say, 100 years of age um, without any major medical illnesses, and you ask, what is it that they actually die from? What you find is that they don't die from things like skydiving accidents or climbing, you know, K2 or some extravagant thing like that. They die from the same thing as everybody else. They die from cardiovascular disease, cancer and dementia, and maybe a couple of other things thrown in there in terms of falls, etc. So the key difference between the healthy centenarian and everybody else is they get the same conditions as everybody else, but they get them 20 to 25 years later than everybody else. So there is a phase shift in the onset of the time of the chronic disease. And that phase shift is, is largely driven by certain genetic factors, but ultimately it is because of adequate control or really optimal control of risk factors for those diseases that makes them happen later in life. So really, if you're looking for the, the major life extension solution, it's about controlling those risk factors to delay the onset of the major chronic diseases that are likely to kill you. That's absolutely fascinating. So let's look at these major risk factors, Paddy, in, from a preventative point of view. How would you speak about them? So again, it's it's on an, an actuarial math basis. If you look at this on, on global in, in both kind of developing and developed nations, the, the, the top risk factors for the development of chronic diseases that are likely to kill you. So this is not just cardiovascular disease. This extends to all the, the major chronic diseases are high blood pressure, number one, hands down in terms of impact as a risk factor worldwide, obesity, smoking, and uh, diabetes or prediabetes. Now, when you actually look at those 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 four factors, smoking is is obviously a no brainer um, in terms of its impact and kind of vascular disease sure. and cancers and everything. But if you look at the other three factors in terms of high blood pressure, increased waist circumference as a measure of obesity, um, and also prediabetes and diabetes, they are effectively the components of the metabolic syndrome. And the metabolic syndrome, as we know, is is, is something that affects a huge percentage of the population. Is something that is very preventable with the right actions and also very reversible. So really, these are metabolic, non-communicable diseases that are driving the, a huge share of, of the chronic disease that's likely to lead to an early death. So just for our listeners, Paddy, just explain what metabolic syndrome is. So metabolic syndrome is, is a constellation of features. And it's when someone has three of the following five characteristics. So they have a, an increased waist circumference, they have high blood pressure, they have high triglycerides, which are seen in their standard lipid panel, a low HD, good cholesterol, and an increased waist circumference, or if I mentioned that already, it's uh, the prediabetes or abnormal glucose control. So looking at that in terms of having any three of those five features basically makes you fall into the category of having the diagnosis of metabolic syndrome. And um, those people with metabolic syndrome are at increased risk of all the major diseases that we talked about in terms of those primary uh, causes of death, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, but also increase all the risks of other chronic diseases like heart failure, obstructive sleep apnea, atrial fibrillation. And, um, you know, you can take your pick. And it's not to say that the, the, the underlying 
causal factor here, which we kind of refer to as insulin resistance, is the thing that is, is driving or, or causing these diseases. This is the amplifier to these diseases. And, and so it's, it's the major accelerant on, on top of these risk factors. So you're saying the risk factors can lead to metabolic syndrome and then they're amped up by insulin resistance. Correct. And, and I think one of the, the easiest ways to, to illustrate this point is that if you look at people with high cholesterol or low cholesterol and then high insulin or low insulin, and high insulin is a marker of metabolic syndrome. Um, so that's kind of what underpins all of this. If you look at people with high cholesterol and low insulin, so that's no metabolic syndrome, their risk of heart disease increases by about 80%. So that's to say that, that high cholesterol is a factor. If you put high cholesterol with high insulin, that risk goes up 11-fold. So really? that's nearly a 1,000-fold difference. So if cholesterol was the fire for cardiovascular disease, insulin or metabolic syndrome is the petrol that's poured on top of it. And so the solution here is, is, is to obviously focus on both, but to understand that, that metabolic syndrome and what we're talking about in these characteristics are the, the huge amplifiers of the basal risks, things like high cholesterol, for example. So I think a lot of people know about cholesterol and getting their cholesterol checked and so on, but not so many people know about insulin or insulin resistance. How, how do people go about getting that blood test done, Paddy? So th there's, there's a number of different ways as to kind of assessing whether you have insulin resistance. There are, are simple, less precise ways, and there are more accurate, more kind of advanced ways to do it. We know that if you have, if you are overweight or obese, there's about a 70% chance that you have insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. So just on a probabilistic basis. And with most adults in the order of 60 to 70% of the population being overweight or obese, you can see how this is such a, a kind of a global problem, not just in Ireland. We know that if you have the metabolic syndrome characteristics that I laid out, so three of the, of the five criteria that I laid out, the probability of you having insulin resistance is very, very high. And if you want to get it more precisely checked, you can check insulin levels. So fasting insulin levels, in addition to a glucose, can be put together to calculate what's called a HOMA IOR score. And that gives an indication of the, the probability of whether you have insulin resistance. And what's important to point out is, is that having insulin resistance increases your risk for all these conditions that we spoke about. But Having insulin resistance means that your glucose is likely normal at this point, as is your HbA1c, which is a marker of, of diabetes. And your insulin levels are rising likely for 10 to 15 years before you develop diabetes. So you can see this coming for, for decades out in individuals if they're um, appropriately tested. And I suppose getting back to, you know, the one of my favorite low-tech measures in my, in my office, the, the simple tape measure, for people measuring their abdominal circumference, it's a very useful marker, isn't it, of where they're at? But again, as a, as a, as a low-tech solution that will give you most of the information, I would agree with you. Uh, if someone, males and females, in terms of cutoffs for waist circumference, they vary, but roughly about 35 centimeters for females and 40 for males. Um, and it's important to realize inches. that is not your gene size. Yeah, yes. in, in inches, inches, but it's not your gene size. Exactly. It is around your waist or where your belly button is when you've actually not uh, taken a deep breath in. And so you'll find that that's a very good proxy measure for that. And why that is such an important measure as opposed to something like weight or, or BMI, for example, is because that is a direct reflection of your mm. visceral fat. So we know that there are two types of fat. There's subcutaneous fat. That's the stuff that sits outside of your, uh, you know, on the outside of your, your body. That's the stuff that you can pinch. Largely, that doesn't actually add significant risk. 
to the things that we talked about. It's the visceral fat. It's the fat inside your abdominal cavity that sits in your major organs like your kidneys, your pancreas, and your liver. And that's where kind of that engine of inflammation is being driven. And that's where all that actually, that risk comes from. And that is why the actual waist circumference as, as a proxy measure for that is very useful. Mm. And of course, I suppose the bottom line is for anyone listening to this, uh, wherever you are right now, you know, doesn't determine where you're going to be next year, the year after, because we can all make positive changes. For someone listening, Patty, who whose abdominal circumference is up, maybe they've been to their doctor, they've got a little bit of blood pressure, cholesterol, and uh, maybe they've even had their insulin levels checked and, and they have, you know, maybe metabolic syndrome and so on. What would you say to them in terms of, you know, taking action and lowering their risks and working on improving their heart health going forward? So the first thing I would say is that although it all sounds like bad news, the really good news about metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance is that it's highly reversible. Great. <laughs> so, so, and and that, that, is the, that is the key thing here. All of these factors can be reversed. Insulin levels can be brought down, the triglycerides. Triglycerides, HDL can come up, your blood pressure will come down, diabetic control, or kind of you move out of the diabetes range, the waist circumference will reduce in size. I've seen many patients uh, reverse all of these factors and significantly decrease their risk of major chronic disease. How we do that, though, is not straightforward. It doesn't typically involve medications um, in terms of directly improving insulin sensitivity, although kind of standard medications like metformin can help. The core solution here is going to be around nutrition and exercise. And it, it seems kind of, you know, cliched and glib to say it in terms of exercise and nutrition are, are the keys here, but they are the, the fundamental pillars of how we reduce our risk for chronic disease. Um, specifically, when we talk about exercise, you know, in general terms, move more. Just, you know, we can, we can get into the technicalities in terms of zone two training to optimize mitochondrial function and improve your insulin sensitivity. But at, at a core level, it's about moving more. If you can move more, move more in such a way that gets your heart rate up, um, uh, you know, in terms of not doesn't have to be too high. If, if you feel like you're going to leave a lung in the side of the, uh, the pavement, don't do it that way, but just get your heart rate up. And in terms of nutrition, there's lots of complexity out there in terms of confusing messaging. But if you actually look at the, the core messaging, it's likely all the same. It's a reduction in processed foods. It's a reduction in sugars and refined carbohydrates and actually increasing uh, your, your protein intake and, and largely not eating excessively. And now the not eating excessively is a very complex feature. It's, it's not just down to willpower. There, there's many different factors at play here. But, but fundamentally, they're, they're the core components. So don't get distracted by the, the, the nutrition or diet wars that happen. I mean, for me, I mean, I find it incredibly fulfilling as a doctor to see people make these changes. I had somebody in yesterday, they'd reversed their diabetes within six months. You know, they cut out the white stuff, they cut out the processed foods, ramped up on vegetables and really, really began to move as if their lives depended on it. And it's made made a huge difference. You know, it it is great when people take these ideas on board because, you know, health is our greatest asset. It can make such a, a positive impact long term. What would you say, though, Paddy, to people, you know, who who have high cholesterol and don't want to take statins? And yet you re- repeat it again after six, nine months. It isn't going anywhere. It's Their cholesterol remains high. Their LDL remains high. Their lifelong risk of something happening clearly is, is quite raised. And um, the first thing I would do is I would ask them why they don't want to take a statin therapy. If we feel that we're at the point of, of using medical therapy at this juncture for a lot of people, you know, we know that the nutrition 
will reduce cholesterol levels um, by about 20, 25%, which will be adequate for some people, but not adequate for others or those who have very, very high risk in terms of established coronary artery disease. So what I would say is, is understand why is it they don't, they don't actually want to take their statin therapy. And I think often it has been down to a idea of statins not working to reduce or prevent heart events. And if you're looking at a lower risk individual, um, just say, for example, they do have a couple of risk factors, but they have a calcium score of zero or no evidence of premature coronary atherosclerosis on a CT scan. The likelihood of them benefiting from being on statin therapy over the near term is very low because their event rate is very low. So it's very hard to make a difference with any therapy. The challenge is, is if that individual is a 40-year-old male or female, we're not interested in 10-year risk. My you know, line that I use is that 10-year risk is only valuable to those individuals planning on living another 10 years. We have to be thinking about much longer time horizons, 40, 50-year time horizons. And when you start to factor in the cholesterol exposure over that period of time and being left persistently high for that period of time, then you start to accrue very significant benefits over that time horizon. So the question of whether statin therapy does or does not work is really down to time horizons and when you actually plan to make the difference. And I think when you actually have that conversation with the patients, and I have this uh, scenario come up again and again and again, high cholesterol, not enthusiastic about statin therapy. It's about how the actual utility of that therapy has been phrased. Um, and it's about when the benefit is likely to be accrued. And, and so, again, I think you need to understand where, where patients I suppose, concerns are regarding uh, any of these medications and be honest in terms of the likelihood of benefit and over the time frame over which that benefit will accrue. I think you put it very well earlier on when you when you suggested, you know, about the, the kind of the blue zone people living disease free to 100. And if you could imagine yourself living to be 100 free of chronic disease uh, and and work backwards, uh, what would that require you to start doing now? So it's, it's I think, as you said, it's really looking at your health as a marathon, and if you're lucky enough with good wind at your at your back, etc., you you might live to be a hundred. So now you want to take good care of yourself along the way. Yeah, and and you know, in terms of all of this is is pro- based on probabilities and odds. The reality is, is we could all be hit by an asteroid right now, and everyone on Earth could die. That is a possibility. It is just highly improbable. And, you know, we could develop rare, unusual diseases. But so we have to play an odds game. We have to. This is this is Moneyball for life. And you are playing at the high stakes poker table right now because you're playing with your life with these actions and every decision that you make. So if you want to set the odds up as much as possible, and you have to say, listen, I want to, in my marginal decade, the last decade of my life, maintain as much functional independence, which is likely going to be able to do the things that you want to do because largely of the absence of a chronic disease. You have to say, listen, well, if that's my expectation or desire in my marginal decade, we'll just say that's in your 80s. And so you're talking about you're going to die at 85 or 87. You have to say, and this is the the line that kind of I, I use, and I've stolen this from a, a different longevity physician called Peter Atia, is that if you want to be a kick-ass 90-year-old, you cannot settle for being an average 50-year-old. And so, you know, aiming for average when you're 50 or in midlife is not an appropriate strategy for being a healthy 85 year old. And one of the other things that I, I think, you know, I, I always kind of slightly hold my tongue is people will say, listen, I don't have any interest in living longer, but I want to have a higher quality of life. And I think that's fantastic. And I really agree with you. But the reality is, is if you want to have a high quality of life at, at the later part of your life, 
you have to do the same things that will require you living longer. So as you, so the thing is, is both of them will happen at the same time. Where that frustration comes in is that when people develop chronic diseases that are quite significant and need often very invasive treatments or advanced medical therapies, our ability to make a difference at that time point is much less sufficient. So therefore, the key here is always, it's always about managing risk factors to prevent the onset of a disease rather than waiting for it to appear and then aggressively treat it. Mm. I mean, like you, Paddy, I've, I've got a great interest in lifestyle medicine. And of course, lifestyle medicine is two words. It's lifestyle and medicine. So we want to have a really health enhancing lifestyle through great habits, exercise, movement, nutrition, sleep, recharging from stress, etc. But as you say, we need to value medical intervention as well at an early stage if we're looking at this, hopefully extra 25 years of life disease free. Yeah. And, and so it, it's not an either or scenario mm. here. The question is, is we know that the four pillars that, that you described here are nutrition, exercise, sleep and stress. The question is, is have you dialed those in optimally for achieving your goals? And then on top of that, based on your individual situation, do we need to layer on the additional benefit of, of medications on top of that? For some people, the answer will be no. And even for some people who are at very high risk, the answer will still be no because of their personal preference, their personal tolerances and what their goals and objectives are. When you look at the European Society cardiology guidelines around prevention, there's a really interesting comment that it makes. It says that even for the highest risk individuals, treatment is not mandatory. And for low to moderate risk individuals, we shouldn't actually withhold treatment if that is the preference based on a risk benefit analysis. So this is again, it's not this is for primary prevention. This is this is this is not in treating, say, someone post MI or post a heart attack. So we always have to understand what our patients' goals are. What are they trying to achieve? How can we help uh, them achieve them, kind of work with them to achieve those goals and over what time horizons? And I have certain patients who have significant coronary disease and will not take any medications. Of course, I would prefer if they did. But they don't. But they, my job every year is kind of when I meet them is to basically work with them and try and understand what their goals are and to assist them as much as possible and educate them, I suppose, in terms of what I believe that they're leaving on the table in terms of risk reduction. But fundamentally, that is their choice. And I ask you, Paddy, you know, what, what's your view of, of supplements? I, and I'm thinking particularly about, you know, omega-3 fish oils, uh, vitamin D, that type of thing. So again, I think you need to, to look at the potential downside versus the potential upside and the mm -hmm. information that we have. And also understanding the, you know, when we actually get that information through a randomized trial, and then also saying, listen, when is a randomized trial not going to give us the information because it's sure. the time horizon over which it's going to make a difference. There was a recent publication in Jack that actually looked at this in terms of a meta-analysis of all the uh, the trials and and largely Omega-3 fish oils are likely a very safe intervention that have a reasonable probability of decreasing cardiovascular events and improving specific risk factors. We know that in terms of certain supplements, things like soluble fiber, they will kind of additionally lower LDL cholesterol. Whether they will reduce events in terms of what we hold the standards of most of our therapies to, who knows, that trial will never be done. And so we know, we know that there are things that can be taken that are non-prescription based that can improve parameters of risk, but we do not have the same outcome data as we would for a pharmacotherapy. But often these are lower risk interventions in general, and so they're reasonably safe to use, but understanding the limitations of that uh, intervention. 
I, I've been fascinated by, you know, the, this concept of Ikigai, the Japanese sweet spot for inner purpose and how people with a strong sense of, sense of purpose seem to really, you know, reduce their their rate of, of heart disease, Paddy. And I'm reminded of this comment that, you know, more people get heart attacks first thing on Monday morning going to jobs they they hate or that stress them out than any other time during the week. So So clearly having a sense of purpose, knowing your why, being engaged, these things are all important for heart health as well. Yeah, so it's interesting that you mentioned that about kind of the, the increased incidence of uh, heart attacks um, on a Monday morning. It also translates into the first snow of the year in the US. So people are out shoveling their snow. It also translates into when the actual clocks change. So when we lose an hour of sleep, heart attacks go up by about 24%. And when we gain an hour of sleep, the actual, there, there is a reduction in the heart attacks as well. But the reduction is not as significant as the increase. So it actually comes out kind of as a net increase in uh, heart attacks. I think in terms of purpose, that's a much more kind of a higher order emotional health question. And Friedrich Nietzsche has a line that uh, he was a why can bear almost any how. And that becomes your, your highest purpose. But the problem is, is without a why, there is no how that's actually going to help you get to your goals. So this is where you need to say, listen, what are my highest values? Are Is my life aligned with those highest values in terms of the actions that I'm taking? Um, and ultimately, that is that, that alignment between your highest values and your actions is the thing that generates your emotional health. And so when you have people who value things that are, are very important to them, like spending time with their family, spending time in nature, exercising, doing all those things, and their life by virtue of the actions that they do is not in any way aligned with them, that misalignment will create significant emotional distress. And we, we see this every single day around us. Fascinating. How do you stay healthy yourself, Patty? With a lot of hard work and, uh, and strategies to make it easy. I'm not a natural exerciser by kind of my by my nature. In my 20s, I did very little, if any, exercise. Um, but currently, um, based on a whole variety of factors, I exercise almost every single day now. I will do aerobic running three to four times a week. I will do resistance training two to three times a week. It takes an awful lot of work, um, takes a lot of time. But the reality is, is if you look at the lever that's likely to generate the biggest outcome in terms of improvement of health span and lifespan, exercise is that lever. And people will say to me, you know, I, I'm just listening to what you're saying. And number one, I don't have an interest in doing that because I don't like exercising. And number two, I just do not have the time. And my response to that is what I say to myself is physiology doesn't care about your schedule. And so that's unfortunate. But the reality is, is you, you will pay the price. And that is why I do it. If you're too busy to exercise, you're too busy. Um, and so you, again, have to ask, what are my values? What are my actions? And what are my goals? I, I struggle with this every single day. I'm really busy in terms of what I do. I busy practice, kids, the, the, the whole lot. But I, I just have to make it a priority in my life. I've sacrificed other things in my life in order to free up that space. So it's not that I'm just adding, adding, adding into an already busy life. I'm actually more so often cutting things out to give myself the space. Mm, I think that's very well put. We all need to focus on what what's important, what matters, and, and simplify, cut out the stuff that doesn't. Confucius once said, the man who chases too many rabbits catches none. So we all have to prioritize uh, what, what's important. But but I, I couldn't agree with you more, Paddy. Exercise really is the greatest pill of all. It's And you feel so much better as well afterwards. 
Yeah, um, you know, so I think we, we have evidence from kind of a short-term mood perspective that regular exercise is the equivalent mood benefits to uh, a low-dose antidepressant. But if you look at all-cause mortality, so the likelihood of dying from anything, and you compare people in the elite fitness category, so this is just the, the top 2.5% of, of a general population. This is not elite Olympic athletes. And you compare them to the, the lowest 25% in terms of two max, they're five times more likely to die over a 10-year period. That five times difference over a 10-year period there, there's nothing else in modern medicine that generates that degree of a delta in terms of the reduction of all-cause mortality. And it maps onto every single chronic disease that we have talked about. So realistically, if you have an interest in living longer and living longer with a higher quality of life, both physically and emotional quality of life, exercise on a regular basis, both aerobic and strength training has to be part of your life. Mm, I couldn't agree more. I mean, exercise, is it's a daily non-negotiable for me. And it, I just love it because you feel so, you feel so much better. And I, I'll take those long-term health benefits as well, Paddy. I see you as being a very resilient person. Can you give our listeners three take-homes for a resilient mind? The first question I would ask is, do you need to be resilient in the situation that you're in? Mm -hmm. So this is the, the the higher kind of meta question. We see this in, in healthcare all the time in terms of people getting resiliency training. My take on all of this now is that, you know, that's the equivalent of giving fire extinguishers to people in a burning building. What we need is less burning buildings, not more fire extinguishers. We can't ask people to just tolerate more and more in terms of what they're doing. So first question is, is am I in the right environment or am, am I in the wrong environment? Yes. Second thing is, is going to be around understanding the principles of stoicism, meditation, in terms of how you relate to thoughts and emotions. This is the ultimate meta skill that supersedes every other one of them and understanding that relationship. The analogy that I often give is that when you hear a car alarm go off outside your house, you intrinsically find that annoying. But a car alarm is just a sound. You're the one who introduces the annoying. And that is that is why the skill of meditation in terms of being able to recognize your relationship with those thoughts and how they generate emotions is that if you can manage those appropriately, if you can build a skill set in terms of to dial down the intensity or not get dragged away on that emotional roller coaster, you will do so much better. But I would also argue is not only will you do better in the environment that you're in, it will help you reflect on the first question as to whether you're in the right environment at all. Fantastic. And finally, for you, Paddy, what's the meaning of life? I've thought about this obsessively for decades and decades. And fundamentally, I've come down on the position that it's the wrong question to ask. Because the meaning of life, when we ask that question, means that we're not paying sufficient attention to the present moment. So when you see a sunset in a beautiful scenery, when you see a snow-capped mountain lit by, by the moon, no one asks that question. When you hold a newborn baby in your arms, that question falls away. So I, I've obsessed over this question for, for decades. I've tried to find an answer. But ultimately, and this is where, the, again, the skill of meditation is, is, if you learn to pay attention sufficiently in each and every given moment, that question falls away. And so it is not, the, I believe, the question to ask. And so I believe that the, the answer to that question is, is learning how to pay more attention 
to this very moment that you are in because not one more moment is guaranteed for you um, and this very moment is enough. Well, that's that's definitely the most interesting answer I've got in the doctor's chair so far. I mean, Aristotle talks about in the Nicomachean Ethics about, you know, pleasure, engagement and meaning all being key components of, I suppose, of well-being and happiness. So we all need pleasure. Uh, we all need engagement, present moment awareness. And then I suppose the meaning is, is that sense of perspective and I suppose, deeper reflection on what life is all about. But Paddy, it's been wonderful having you as my guest in the doctor's chair. Keep leading and keep inspiring in all that you do. And thank you so much for being my guest. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank you for listening to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. For further resources to support you to live with more vitality, please visit my website, drmarkrow.com. 